0: Thank you, Kelly. Let's continue uh, in the same vein of prayers that that Dan has led us in, uh, using an old prayer. God, our Father in heaven, have mercy on us. God, the Son, Redeemer of the world, have mercy on us. God, the Holy Spirit, have mercy on us. Holy Trinity, one God, Have mercy on us as we gather to hear your word. Amen. Well, earlier this week, Nicola and I met a a couple we know who are about to enter training for the ministry. They're one step back from Alex Keane, who's getting ordained in a couple of weeks. They're about to head off to theological college where the husband begins his time of training. And it's an exciting time for them. However, it's also a daunting time not just because of all the changes it's going, to be, uh, or it's going to bring for their family, but because they, like many in, particularly my generation, have at one time been nurtured in unhealthy environments in the church. They look back at their time in a particular place with, with gratitude and affection, and yet in that place, uh, the minister of the church is no longer there. He was accused of bullying and being heavy handed. Without going into the specific details of that particular situation, our friends are wondering, what do we do with that? Is our experience of God's grace in that place now tarnished? How should we evaluate what we receive from a pastor who was also a bully? What does it mean for us as we enter ministry ourselves? Are the practices we learnt healthy or harmful? Those are important, yet unsettling, confusing, and scary questions to ask. And in 1 Samuel 21 today, we'll have to wrestle with similar questions about David. So far in 1 Samuel, David has been a model of virtue and a foreshadowing of Christ himself. We've learned a great deal from his example, but as we'll see, David is far from perfect. He's the chosen king, the man after God's own heart. So, what do we do when he displays doubt, when he's deceptive and devious, when he's a danger to others? The message this morning is all about imperfect leadership but it's also about the grace of God and his goodness in the midst of mess. So let's get back into the messy situation David finds himself in. Hopefully you'll remember how David has already been anointed king but he's not yet been enthroned as king. That means um, he's not publicly recognized as king and there's someone else still ruling, Saul. And Saul is now pursuing David, intending to kill him. Why? Well, because Saul is jealous of David. Not even Jonathan, Saul's son and David's best friend, could mediate between them. Saul was desperate to secure his own power and glory, and so David was forced to flee away from home, away from his friend David, uh, Jonathan rather. He's on the run. And he'll remain on the run for the rest of this book of 1 Samuel. As we see in verse 1, David first goes to a place called Nob. Now, Nob was a priestly town and the resting place, or would become the resting place of the tabernacle. uh, And it was believed to be just north of Jerusalem. And they went there, David and his men, who were waiting in a hidden place, because they were in need of provision and supplies. And in Nob... David is greeted by Ahimelech, the priest, who looks at David's condition and kind of fears the worst. He says, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? What's going on? But there's a surprise in verse 2. And it's here that some of David's imperfections perhaps come to light. David lies. David answered Ahimelech the priest, the king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is going to know, no one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. Now, it's possible that David was simply trying to pre- protect Ahimelech. If Saul found out, Ahimelech would have plausible deniability. And it's, of course, a good thing that David wants to keep his friend, the priest, from harm. Nevertheless, David lies. He's dishonest. And in scripture, lying is a regular characteristic of evil. The ninth commandment forbids it. Many of David's own psalms express condemnation and David's confession of deception. For example, Psalm 12, you don't need to turn there, I'll read it. Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips and harbor deception in their hearts. Or Psalm 34, which we've already had reference to, the psalm written about this very episode David writes, whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good deeds, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Many of the Proverbs associate lying with sin. The prophet Hosea lists lying among the many sins of Israel. So lying is often associated with evil. That said, there are also a number of biblical passages where someone misleads an enemy without being condemned. And on occasion, they're even commended for it. For example, the Israelite midwives in Egypt in Exodus 1, or Rahab hiding the spies in Joshua 2 and and Joshua 6. She, in fact, appears in Hebrews 11, doesn't she, as a model of faith. So how should we evaluate David here? Well, it's not immediately obvious, is it? Though we should bear in mind, in the next chapter, there are tragic consequences. In 1 Samuel 22, verse 18, if you just look across the page at that, it reads, The king then ordered Doag you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. Those are the priests. He also put to the sword knob the town of the priests with its men and women, its children and infants, its cattle, donkeys and sheep. For harboring David, Ahimelech and his family were killed. The the next section in our chapter may also hint at David's folly. Just look at verse 10 of chapter 21. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish or Achish, king of Gath. Now perhaps you remember that name Gath, that place from chapter 17. Remember Gath was the town where Goliath was from. It's enemy territory. Why does David go there? The anointed king of Israel who's been promised by God that he will rule, goes to Goliath's home with Goliath's sword, hoping not to be recognized. It doesn't much sound like the actions of a king. Where is the faith that enabled David to take on Goliath? Where is the faith that his friend Jonathan displayed when he took on an enemy stronghold with just him and his armor bearer in chapter 14? And then, in fear of Achish, king of Gath, David saves his, skin, his, his own skin through deception by pretending to be insane. So again, how do we evaluate this? What do we say about David's actions? Is David wise and shrewd like the Israelite nurses and Rahab? Like Cory ten Boone who hid and sheltered Jewish people from the Nazis during the Holocaust? Or is he a fool, lacking in faith? like Peter before the crucifixion. Or like the great Thomas Cranmer, who for a brief time in Mary Tudor's reign denied his Protestant faith to escape burning. In doing so, he watched his friends, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, go to the stake themselves in Oxford in 1555. Though, of course, Thomas Cranmer would later recant what he said and was himself executed for his faith. What is David doing in all this? Much like the mess we face in the church today, there is a tension and ambiguity in this episode. There are no easy answers. And that in itself should be a lesson to us. You see, we want things in black and white. We want goodies and baddies. And everything wrapped up into neat boxes we can understand and accept. The reality is far more untidy at least to us. Supposed good guys sin and cause great harm, and bad guys are sometimes the means of God doing great things. So perhaps we're asking the wrong questions. Instead of asking, what is David doing in all this? A better question is surely, what is God doing in all this? And asking that question in this episode, I think shifts our focus from the imperfections of David and other leaders to the perfect guiding grace and goodness of God. You know, the Thomas Cranmer who denied his Protestant faith and watched his friends go to the stake for for their faith is the same Thomas Cranmer that supported the translation of the Bible into English. Um, It's the same Thomas Cranmer who steered the composition of the Book of Common Prayer, who developed the articles of the Church of England, who wrote countless homilies and sermons that were used by other ministers in the Church, which still form a part of the official doctrine of the Church today. The Lord worked in and through Cranmer's weakness and folly to bless his ministry. Likewise, Notice how in God's kindness, David and his men receive the provision of the holy bread, despite deception. Notice how in God's power, David escapes the clutches of the enemy, despite walking into Achish's hands. Notice how in God's mercy, God provides David with shelter and refuge in a place not too far from his boyhood home. Adullam is in Canaanite territory, effectively no man's land, about 12 miles southwest of Bethlehem. Notice how in God's wisdom he provides clear guidance and direction for David through the prophet Gad in chapter 2 verse 5. God saves David through his folly and not just externally. Internally, God is at work growing David in faith, forming him to become the king after God's own heart. Psalm 34, which we've already mentioned, is evidence of that. In his distress, David is able to say something like this from Psalm 34 Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you, his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry but those who seek the lord lack no good thing but it's not only david who benefits notice also how god works through david and his folly to bless others in this desperate situation i think uh, 1 samuel chapter 22 verses 1 and 2 are, are the most striking verses in this whole episode Um, Look look down, let's read them again. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Vadulim. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. Yes, the anointed king is being pursued by Saul and is on the run in the wilderness, Yes, those gathered around him are small in number, just 400, compared to the royal armies commanded by Saul. Yes, they are those who are weak, displaced, social outcasts, in distress. And yet, despite everything going on, here there is a faithful remnant of the Lord's people gathered around the Lord's chosen king. The disadvantaged are drawn to, to that refuge which they receive, and they're not refused. Reading this, I was really struck how the, the cave of Adulam is a picture of the church, even the church today. There is more than enough to distress us, our reach and our resources as a church are limited. There are a plethora of reasons to feel discontent with how things are in the Church of England or or even here. Nevertheless, we continue to gather around our leader in verse 2, our Good Shepherd, who is in our midst. And I don't mean me and Dan and Steve. I mean Jesus Christ who is the focal point of hope in crisis. And unlike David, there is no ambiguity about his actions. Christ governs his church in perfect wisdom, power, and love. His church should feel like a, and it is a refuge for the broken. Because Jesus doesn't lie. Every word he speaks is life-giving. Receiving his word is like eating that precious holy bread given for our sustaining. And because Jesus doesn't just attract the weak and the lowly to him, he actively goes looking for them. He finds the sheep without a shepherd. He beckons the little children to him. He comforts the persecuted. Not as a last resort, not because he's desperate, not by coercion. Christ gathers the weak by design. So, are you, like my friends, entering into ministry feeling distressed or destabilized or unsettled in the faith? Are you in debt, feeling needy and helpless, whether physically, emotionally, or spiritually? Are you discontented, unsatisfied, disillusioned, or perhaps embittered by the church or its leaders? If so, don't put your ultimate confidence in your brothers and sisters who, like you, are also broken and in need of refuge. Look again to the one who shields us. Look to the Lord and his anointed one. Just hear what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Words to us as much as they were to um, the church he was writing to. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. In all the mess and the sin and the strange happenings, God continues to shower grace upon his people. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't frustrations or difficulties or even scandals and things in the church for which church leaders should be held accountable. But it does mean that as those in Christ Jesus, even the sufferings that we share with Christ can be a means of our renewal and our growth so it can be good for us to fail. Ray Ortland says, may all our churches fail often enough, obviously enough, painfully enough to stay hungry and poor before the Lord, for he has filled the hungry with good things. What is God doing in all this? That is a Great question to ask, always a great question to ask. What is God doing in my mess, in your mess, in our mess? And Psalm 34, a psalm written in the context of David's escape from Gath, is a great way to respond. And so, mindful of our messes, our struggles, weaknesses, failures, frustrations, debts, our sorrows, let's turn to Psalm 34 together, a psalm of David. psalm of Christ and a psalm of his people. And let's say it together as we close. You can find Psalm 34 on page 561 in the church Bibles. So Psalm 34 together. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them, He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. Amen.